Good morning, Impact. How are you? Ready for story time? I've been chomping the bit on this one because I wrote this. And I think you'll find it inspiring and beautiful. Here it is. Once upon a time. That's a, that's a whole new beginning you've never heard before, right? I, uh, I got that somewhere. I can't remember where. TV show or something. Once upon a time, there lived a very powerful and mighty king. And he wanted to throw the greatest party ever. He wanted to throw the hugest banquet, the most elaborate banquet that had ever been thrown. And by the way, he wasn't just any mighty and powerful king. I probably need to throw that in. I mean, he wasn't the current world superpower type thing. Think bigger. Can you guys think bigger than that? Okay, we're thinking a little bigger. It's not like he was the ruler of the West or the East. Think bigger than that. In fact, it wasn't like he was just the ruler of the planet or even our galaxy. Think bigger, people. Bigger. Think bigger than Star Wars. Can you do that? We're talking universe. This is the king of the universe, all right, got that now. Back to the party. He wanted to throw the greatest party ever. So he gets this idea together and decides to send out invitations to this party because you know he's going to come if they don't know about it. Turns out he hasn't thrown a party in a while, so invites have changed just a little bit. Invitations no longer arrive by slaves or couriers or even ancient messengers or chariot or pony express or even telegram. In fact, this isn't even the kind you got in the mailbox or even via a phone call. Nope. No one even checked those methods anymore. In fact, nowadays, email was ancient. Instant message seemed to take forever, and only twits use Twitter. So he's not going to use any of that. In fact, this is sort of like what's new is old and what's old is new. So this invite method is going to look really vogue, but it's really retro, going back. And it came a hundred different ways under one general category. And sometimes it came so subtly that you could easily miss it. I mean, if you weren't looking, you got invited to something great, and and, and you didn't even know it. So when it happens, you go, I don't remember getting that invite, but you got it. You definitely got the invite. It turns out that it came through the king's children. He sent out his sons and daughters. But hey, let's face it, they weren't wearing special uniforms, and they didn't glow in the dark, and they didn't have the Shekinah glory on them or anything. They, they dressed like, looked like you and I. But if you listen carefully, their words were very different. And they acted very different. For instance, whenever they said the name of Jesus, it was almost reverently, and it was never like a cuss word. So their friends used it different. But you could tell if you listened when the name of Jesus came, they used it almost reverently. Uh, when others were drunk at parties, you know, maybe wearing lampshades or something, they were gentle and seemed almost saddened by it as they looked at it, but never judgmental. You guys know the difference, right? I mean, when someone's at a party and they're laughing with you and having a good time and they're, they're not really making a fool of themselves and they're not doing anything bad or anything and they're, they're a friend and when somebody is doing that, they're not mocking them, they're a little sad by it, but not, not judgmental. And that's really important because judgmental, that put them in another category. Sometimes when left alone with one of the king's children, you'd hear it, you'd hear the, the invitation and it sounded really good and it would be delivered with a smile to a better banquet than anything you've ever seen anything you've ever experienced. But it all seemed too good to be true. I mean, when they invite you to this thing and describe it, you're going, wow. I mean, especially if you're down and out at the time. If you're having a bad day and you get one of these invites, you're going to go, count me in. I'd love to be at that thing. That, that, that sounds great. But since it, when you were alone, sounded, you know, you think back, there's no banquet like that guy described. There's no banquet like that, that lady described. It, it sounds too good to be true. And because of that, you go back to the daily grind. 
just kind of go back to your job, go back to whatever, living for the weekend. Then one day, the invitations, they seemed to stop coming. They really were still coming, but to you, it seemed like they stopped. And you weren't sure what happened. None of us were, but the sons of the king got, I guess they got transferred. Or maybe the daughters of the king moved away, or maybe they still work here. Perhaps they're working in another department or something. But I sort of missed the invites to a better life. But you can't cry over spilt milk, so let's just go on with life. Life must go on. So the sons and daughters, they returned to the king after years of these invites for this party that would have taken a lot of prep. And they reported that the well-to-do, the high self-esteem coexist crowd didn't want to come. They turned them down flat. And they're kind of embarrassed to tell the king. They had some excuses and all, and they're, they're kind of lame. Honestly, this is what they told. And we'll get to that in a moment in our story. Well, the king was not too happy, to put it mild. He was furious. But he still looked at the people, and he loved them anyway. Sort of like, parents, where are you? Let me see your hands. Sort of like you, you still love your child when he's ruined his life, when he's messing up, when she's messing up, but you, you're mad, right? I mean, you're mad that they're going that way, but you don't stop loving them. You love them, but you can't condone the direction that they're going. So he still wanted to reach out to them. They just can't see that they're ruining their lives. So he sent his sons and daughters out again. Only this time he shifted it a little bit. Maybe those people that are, whose lives are so together and so comfortable can't really hear me. So this time I'll send them to a different group. And he sent them to the unemployment offices and he sent them to the divorce courts. And he sent them to the welfare lines and to the families that couldn't get along with rebelling teens, fighting moms and dads. And he sent them to the wallflowers and those who felt lonely even in a crowd. And they included those tired of keeping up appearances and the ones longing for something real. I mean, sort of the marginalized, I guess, is where the invites went out to. And the cool thing about the invites this time is they came. I mean, they RSVP'd and then they, they started showing up. I mean, they were showing up in droves. But it's a big banquet. And the banquet hall is bigger than anything you've ever seen. Bigger than planet Earth. And so there's still more room. So he sent them out even to the highways and the byways and the homeless and the bridges. Said, just compel them. Just get everybody you want. My father's house must be full. My father's house must be full. And they came in droves. Because the offer of adoption into God's very own family, the offer of being a part of this banquet that lasts forever, a chance to become sons and daughters. Oh, all this is part of the deal. I didn't tell you that. Of the king of kings. Well, they received it like a wishful and a hopeful bride who'd been waiting forever for that engagement ring, and she finally got it. She finally got it. And great was the celebration that day. Great was the celebration that day. I'm kind of proud of my story. I felt like you guys would be moved a little more than that. <laughs> had the banquet thing, had the prince, had the uh, Cinderella effect because there's a ball, had the wealth, I mean, the, the, the elaborate banquet. Maybe I didn't describe it good enough. I don't know, but it seems like you guys are sipping your lattes, which you're not allowed to have in here, by the way. Caught you. How about you, Pastor Rob? Different rules on stage. <laughs> so, <laughs> where was I? I love that story, guys. And I, I'll tell you why maybe you, you're a little mad at me or not reacting that much. Maybe you're going, you didn't make that up, Pastor Rob. You ripped it off. All right. I borrowed it. God actually made it up. And here's his version. In fact, in honor of God's word, would you stand with me? And I'll read his version to you. 
It's in Luke chapter 14. And beginning with 16 is the part I really want to zoom in on. But the whole chapter is about this incredible banquet. Let's read together. Jesus replied to this group, and it's a group of Pharisees, religious leaders, that, that invited him over to trap him, like they always do. And he said, a man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. And when the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, uh, I just bought a field, and now I got to go look at it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five pairs of oxen. Now, that would have been a big deal in that day. It's like buying a bunch of huge caterpillar, huge heavyweight equipment. Uh, but I haven't tried them out. I don't even know if they work. Please excuse me. Another said, I now have a wife, so I can't come. This guy's might have been legit. That's the only one. <laughs> 21. The servant returned. Never mind that. We got more. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. And his master was furious and said, well, then go quickly into the streets, the alleys of the town, and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And after the servant had done this, he reported back, there's still room for more. So his master said, then go out into the country lands and behind the hedges and her urge. And some of your Bibles say, compel anyone you find to come so that the house will be full for none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. So there's this part at the end that kind of makes it not so fun anymore, huh? You could be seated. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, the ears of our hearts. This is a beautiful story, Lord, but there's also a massive warning, Father, to stop weighing things of this earth, stop worshiping things, things created over the creator, stop making everything else a priority over you, Lord, and put you first and live for eternity. It's all here, Father. And I believe the invitation will go out again today. I pray that people will hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's up here? Jesus just launched into this story from out of left field? No. Every time Jesus tells a parable, which is a story alongside a truth to support it, make it more powerful, it's because something provoked it. So what provoked this story this time? Well, if you've got your Bibles and you're in Luke chapter 14, you go up to verse 1. It starts out like this. One Sabbath day. Now, i got to stop right there. And that doesn't mean it's going to be a three-hour sermon. But I want to say this. Whenever Sabbath is included in the New Testament, you know that Jesus is going to get set up. The Sabbath is their holy day and their worship day. And they had piled all kinds of rules onto this one day. And Jesus loved to heal all days, and he loved to teach, and he loved to do what he came for seven days a week. But whenever he did it on the Sabbath, they figured they had something against him. And they're building a case against Jesus. So they purposely invite him over for dinner on the Sabbath. And I get a kick out of this. I'm thinking, who's preparing the meal on the Sabbath? Who's working to prepare the meal? Never mind, the rules don't apply to them. Just like my drinks up here don't apply to you. Now, so this is a really nice invite. No, it's not. This is the cat inviting the mouse over for dinner. It's an invite with an agenda. It's a bad one. It's a trap. It's pretty much what the Pharisees were. They were ancient day trappers of Jesus. Listen, they don't care about Jesus. And, and this is kind of a, ironic. They're religious leaders. But they don't care about God. They don't care about the things of God. You're going to find out they brought in a diseased person who has the disease dropsy where there's swelling in your stomach. It can bloat out incredibly far and your joints can get arthritic. It can actually kill you. And they brought it, and, and the reason they brought this guy in on the Sabbath and had the meal there is because it would be obvious. Because dropsy bloated you out so far, and you could see it was so distorted, there would be no doubt that this man sitting there needs a healing, right? They didn't want to bring somebody where he goes, that guy have anything wrong? No, he can't tell. No, they wanted to bring somebody obvious because they wanted to set Jesus up and see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So this guy with dropsy is sitting there. 
And he went to dine at the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees, and they were watching him carefully. Watching him carefully. I don't care about him. I don't care about the things of God. I don't care about this guy with dropsy. These are people who only care about the comfortable setup that for over the decades and the last century, this incredible life they've been able to create for themselves, that even with the Romans coming in and all, the religious leaders still make a lot of money, have a pretty cush life, got a nice setup. And then Jesus comes along and says, your hearts are wicked and you're just, you're just living the life on the outside, but you're unchanged. He's going to ruin everything. Don't you hate when that happens? He's really got to go. And that's how they feel about Jesus. Right now, they feel like the world's a stage and all the props and all the actors exist to support us, the Pharisees, in our religious existing role. You know anyone like that? That wasn't a rhetorical question. Sure you do. We're all like that to an extent. I mean, if you think about how you go through life and how people react and what goes on in your attitude, isn't it at least part of it, at least some days, aren't you reacting to how bad people do or how, good, or, or how good they react or how bad they react to you because it's all about you, right? How does life react to me because I'm the actor on this stage? I mean, we all have that and it's sinful and it's wrong. So these religious leaders, they never consider Jesus or his words or his healings or anything. They just see him as a, as a threat to their cushy way of life. So they carefully orchestrate this dinner to build a legal case against him. Let's continue, verse two. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Now, you, some of you might be thinking, hey, you know they're building a case because there's attorneys there. All right, they're building a case. They're actually building a list. They've got many Sabbaths Jesus has already healed on, but they don't want one or two. They want a bunch of them because they're gonna take them to court in about a year and a half, find him guilty, and crucify him. They're building the case right now. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He already knows. By the way, it is lawful. But they had added laws to it. So he puts it back at him. Then he took him, this man, well, well, let me back up. They remained silent. Don't you love that? They're setting up this game, but they won't play. Jesus says, you have a, a sick guy you brought here. It's the Sabbath. I get it. Is it lawful to heal this guy? Here's them. I forget. I mean, who invited him? Who knew he'd be here? Guess you'll have to go this one alone, Jesus. See the attorneys? They'll be watching. But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you having a son? Well, forget that, even an ox that's fallen into a well or a pit on the Sabbath day would not immediately pull him out. And guess how many of them would do that? All of them. And they could not reply to any of these things. So they're not remaining silent now to remain silent. Remaining silent now because anything they say would be stupid. So their desire is to see if he will do anything on the Sabbath, that's Saturday, to you and I. And it was forbidden to do any kind of work. But I, I need you to know that 90% of the things you could not do on the Sabbath had been added by this group, the Pharisees. It's a day of rest, but they added incredible things. Like if you wanted to prepare a meal, you could get things for that meal, but it couldn't be more than like 300 feet from your home. If you had to walk 301 feet from your home, then you've sinned by, I mean, just crazy stuff. If you go to Jerusalem today, for many of the Orthodox Jews, and you go to hotels, they have special elevators, and they have the Sabbat elevator. You know what that one is? See, if you push a button, it fires an electrical um, chain of events. I don't know, electrician. It just gets... It's work to push a button on an elevator. So they can go in the elevator and they can stand there 
and it'll take them to every single floor because it's a Sabbat elevator. It's programmed to go to every single floor, but you don't have to push a button or work or do anything. Talk about legalism. Talk about adding things. You know that one was added. There's no elevators in Jesus' day, so they're still adding stuff to this thing, even now. So what does Jesus observe about this, this shindig, this little party? Because he's about to launch into a story. So he's healed this guy, and he's looking around. He's looking at how they've acted. And actually, Jesus has been watching them. They're watching him, but he's watching them watching him. Say that three times fast. And he observes some behavior from the beginning of the party till this point. Look at verse 7. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So as they're coming into the party, he's watching them sit down. That's how long Jesus has been watching them. The reason Jesus is about to launch into this particular story is because these clueless dinner hosts are not getting it. So, this, so it's story time. And this story will address the blatantly wrong, prejudiced actions of these party hosts and their guests right before Jesus' eyes. He's watching it happen. All right, verse 8. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit in a place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than yourself be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, uh, can you please get up and move and give your seat to this person? And then you'll be, begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So when, when your host comes, they'll say to your friend, move up higher. Why are you sitting here? Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at a table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is kindergarten stuff. Even if these people didn't say a word, you could still tell how they viewed themselves and how they viewed others by the way they were sitting down and by the way they were ushering people in at this huge banquet of this ruling Pharisee. They would jockey for the best seats. They would seek the place of most honor. They would seek people to talk about them with the most honor. And they disdained the act of humility and they disdained people that had afflictions or were in lower stations of life. You could tell all this just by the way they were sitting. And Jesus says, wow, that's my, that's Hebrew for, but everything you do should be the complete opposite if you were really legit followers of God. If you were really legit followers of my fa father, I'm looking at you going, everything you do would be the opposite of what you're doing. And you can't see it at all. It's, it's actually impossible to be any further away from true religion than you are. Instead of exalting yourselves, you'd let God take care of it. Instead of only inviting the popular, rich, and well thought of, you'd invite those who are marginalized and overlooked because they need it the most. And you'd stand while others took not only the best seats, but all the seats. Imagine the awkward silence after that one. And imagine the Pharisee who invited him, the Pharisee of Pharisees who invited him. Is he having a few regrets right about now? And the host is not off the hook, by the way. He gets his own mini parable. I wish we had time to go into that because it's a good one. But I want to skip down a little bit and, and delve a little bit deeper into the story that I told that matches the verses we read when you all stood. This is for all of us. Jesus is talking about the greatest party that will ever be thrown in the history of the world. And invitations go out just the way Jesus said they shouldn't. So it's, it's kind of weird. He, he sent out God, the Father, the King of Kings, sent him out just the way he says they shouldn't actually go out this way. But he did it to prove a point. Just like kind of when the law is there, all it proves is that we can't keep the law. It shows us how sinful we are. And this will show us that we can't keep God's standards. 
You see, in this culture, in biblical times, two invitations were expected when banquets were given. And you need to know this because it's not really this way anymore. The first asked the guest to attend. Hey, I'm throwing a big banquet. November 24th. Describes what it's going to be like, where it's going to be at, time of it and all. And it's going to be a great party and all. Would you let me know if you'd like to come to this, if you are going to come to this? What do we call that? RSVP. I know you don't know it because... We, my wife and I have used RSVPs for the last 15 years of ministry, and none of you ever respond to them, so we don't understand this two-invitation system. But it started way back here. And then another invitation would be sent out when the banquet was ready and said, come, it's ready now, come to the, uh, come to the banquet. That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? But you have to understand something. They don't have big freezers. They don't have big refrigerators, so they're not putting the ice sculptures in the freezer, and they're not putting the ice cream in there, and they're not refrigerating the salad, and they're not putting this whole thing on hold and bringing. When you have a banquet there, you've got a limited window to have it. You're cooking the meat, you're making the preparations, and if you're late to this thing, everything's going to be done. If you're early, you're going to be waiting. I mean, it's the window's small, so when it's ready, you knew the date anyway. You knew it was coming. And when he says, come, you got to come or you're going to ruin it. But when he sent these invitations out that you're hearing about, that we read about, that wasn't the first one. That was the second one. That was the second one. They had already been invited to the banquet. So when he sent it out, they started giving these lame excuses. But Jesus is actually referring to a bigger picture, a bigger banquet. And he's pointing the finger at the Pharisees and going, here, I'm just going to tell you a little story about a little party since we're having one and since we're at one right now. But actually, all of Scripture has been about a bigger banquet. And your mindset at this little party is still the mindset you have today. He's saying, my father invited you all through Abraham, Moses, and all the prophets. And the invite said you could be his people. The invite said you will be chosen nation. You were all very quick to RSVP to that. I would love to be the favored nation of God. I would love to be called God's people. But now that his son is before you and the kingdom of God is literally ready to be offered, you're turning God down with every lame excuse you can think of. In Jesus' story, the invite to a wonderful banquet sounded great to most. So what happened? Well, while they were waiting for the day to come around, life just sort of happened. Life happened, and they lost interest in the things of God because there wasn't much of their life that was really revolving around God or his people or his church or his mission or anything. So when the second invitation came around and the kingdom of God was being offered, they didn't even really remember it. Did I ask Peter that? I don't, I don't really remember. I don't think I said yes to that. I mean, the bottom line is when the real invitation came to show up, here it is, it's upon us, they didn't have the heart for it. They didn't have a heart for it. They just didn't want to go. I mean, this is literally, I can't come. I've got to wash my hair. It's that lame. And you know when, by the way, guys, if you ask a girl out and she says that, she's not that into you. She's not. That's what that means. Question, how will you know whether or not you will have a heart for the things of God when God calls you? When God calls you and says, I'm ready for you, child. How do you know that you're not going to be in the one group that goes, ah, man, not now. I mean, i got things to do that starts offering up excuses. Or if you're going to go, God, I've waited for this day my whole life. I'm coming. I want to be your son. I want... How do you know? That's a pretty big deal. We'll answer that in a moment. 
First, let's look at the bigger picture. What Jesus is ultimately talking about here is heaven and salvation and eternity and matters of the greatest and highest importance possibly imaginable. The greatest significance of anything. God sent his son, picture it this way. God sent his Holy Spirit from the beginning of time, from creation, from the sin of Adam and Eve, to woo a bride for his son. The church is his bride. So think of it this way. The part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to call people to the wedding feast, to the banquet, to win a bride for Jesus. Yet, the self-sufficient say, sorry, I just don't have time. Sorry, I'm just not that into you, God. I think that's crazy. Don't you? Let's say your dream is to be an NFL football coach. And right now, nobody will let you coach anything. You are the assistant to the assistant coach of the Tustin Tiny Tykes. The seven-year-old peewee football where they can't even run in the same direction. And you don't even get to coach that. The assistant coach doesn't get to coach that. And certainly the assistant to the assistant. You'll give the kids water. That's your job. But the owner and manager for the Denver Broncos flies out, comes to you and here. I hear you're doing a pretty good job assistant coaching to the assistant coach of the Tustin Tiny Tikes. So we'd like you to make $10 million a year, guaranteed every year, and you cannot be fired to come out, fly out, and coach the Denver Broncos. In fact, why don't you take over this year? They're having a pretty decent year. They've lost a game, but we think that can turn around with you. And you go, you know, I don't think so. I'm kind of busy with the Tustin Tiny Tikes. And listen, don't don't read this wrong. If you're sitting there going, is he putting down coaching peewee football? Because I think that's a big honorable thing. No, I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about missing something tremendous, missing something great, missing the greatest offer you'll ever get in your life because you're doing something minuscule and you can't see that that's so much better even though it's this obvious. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Listen to the way that C.S. Lewis, the great author of the Chronicles of Narnia, look at Narnia, look at how he put it. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go out and making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. The real problem isn't even the mud pies. It's the fact that we think that's the best there is. See, these people aren't making lame excuses to not go to something that's not going to be fun or to go to something that's going to be lame itself or go to something that's going to be boring. They're making lame excuses to go to the most awesome thing in the history of the world so they can keep on doing that which is lame and meaningless and temporal. It's completely backwards. How blind you got to be to do that? But the first group turns God down flat. And naturally, God's angry about it. He'd offered such a great opportunity to people, but all they could give him in return was weak excuses. Now, why did the first group turn him down? Well, 2 Corinthians 2.16, it's kind of this lone verse that Paul wrote to the dysfunctional church in Corinth, but it's a verse that stands throughout the ages, and it's true this morning for this group sitting here. It says, to one, the gospel, basically, he's talking about, is a stench leading to death. To another, it's a sweet aroma leading to life. Who's sufficient for these things? You know what that means? 
That means when the gospel goes out, some people hear it and, and their life and their heart is at such a place and the Holy Spirit has wound them. They're at such a point in their life where it, it's a sweet fragrance. And they go, I haven't been able to make anything work. And this is what I've been waiting for. And it's so beautiful to them. They just run to it. Like we sang today, we will run to you. And others hear this offer and it stinks. It's a stench. It's worse than death. It's worse than being in a funeral thing. They can't relate to it all. How can the same offer be received polar opposite ways? Well, because so much time away from God and worshiping the things of the world had turned reality upside down for these people. Good was bad, bad was good, right was wrong, wrong was right. Some got so detached from God that godly things smelled offensive to them and the world's garbage smelled like sweet perfume. That's what happened. Let's keep going, verse 21. The servant returned and told his master what they had, what they had said. The master was furious and said, go quickly in the streets and alleys. And Then they went out and said, there's still room. And he said, well, then go and compel anyone you can find. My father's house must be full. There's still room for more. So the servant went a completely different direction to a completely different crowd. And in my story, the sons and daughters go to a completely different crowd. They went to the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Now, why would the master of the universe, the master of the house, invite those who are poor, crippled, blind, and lame? I'm glad you asked. Think of it this way. Poor people wouldn't be distracted by material possessions, right? Why I have to give up my yacht? Oh, wait, I forgot I don't have one. Wait, I'll be at the lake house that weekend, except I don't have one. I can't come. I got season tickets to whatever. Oh, no, I don't. I'll be there. I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but you got to admit this poor guy's less likely to be distracted by him, right? Maybe that's why it's harder for a rich person to go to heaven, or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to go to heaven. Maybe that's why Jesus said that. It's just the more stuff you get, the harder it gets to let go of that stuff and not worship it. It's easier for a poor person. Then the crippled. Well, crippled people wouldn't be distracted by all the recreational weekend warrior pursuits. They're just not. So they can't do them. I can't go. I got a golf. Oh, wait, I can't golf. I'm, I'm in a wheelchair. I can't golf. They're not thinking about that. There's a 5K run. I, I can't run. I got a bad back. <clears throat> what about blind people? Well, the one gave the married excuse. Blind people weren't likely, especially in that day, to get married. I'm just telling you why he said it. It's just blunt. These people's ears are working, though. The ears of their heart. And lame people wouldn't be running around like chickens with their heads cut off, busy, busy, busy. They can't. In other words, the servants were instructed to invite those who were not distracted by the following four things. And by the way, I'm going to say them in another way real quick. You need to look at these and really listen because the King of Kings has an invitation for you today and my concern is you might miss it. And if you do miss it this morning, it'll be for one of the following four reasons. Because I tricked you. And you might think you're just here on accident. <clears throat> Some of you are going, I come here every week. This week's special. Some of you are going, I come here occasionally. This week's special. I see a couple new faces. Some of you are saying, I've never been here at all. This is really special for you today. I'll tell you why. Because an invite's going out. The invite to the great banquet I told you about, it's still going out till this day. 
And people are either receiving it as a beautiful aroma or a, a stench. And the first invitation went out. Somebody invited you here. You saw a sign. Something happened. And you're here. But the one that matters, that's just an RSVP. You showed up and you're going, okay, give me the spiel. Let me hear about the timeshare. Here it is. Number one, if you miss it, it will be because of possessions. Often the many possessions of the rich are not really owned by them. Have you noticed that? They don't possess their possessions. If you look real closely, you'll see that their possessions possess them. I mean, they can't even let it go for five minutes. They're afraid somebody will steal it, will, will deal it away as a, as a broker, a money manager. I mean, it, it, possess, it owns them. They don't own it. Your vocation. Too many of us draw our worth and sense of self from what we do rather than who we are. Our identity is what we do. Wrapped up in perceived value, what we do. The one who purchased the oxen was using his business as an excuse. Saying, oh, I have to work Sundays if I'm ever going to get ahead. And that's just, it's basically, so his vocation kept him from the party. The greater you perceive yourself to be, the harder time you'll have thinking you need Jesus. That's what was wrong with these people at the party. Say, man, you're all jockeying for seats of honor. I'm watching what you're doing. Of course you can't look at me because you're looking at yourself. And the one who thinks they're even the greatest is the most blind to me and the invitation and the offer. Third thing, affections. This one might sting a little bit. Some of you going, that's okay. The first two were a little stingy. Keep going. This could be anything. It could be our spouse. It could be our children. We're to love them and care for them, but never above God. Believe it or not, never above God. And certainly no thing or activity above God. Because if it's above God, marriage, weekends at the lake, kids, sports, golf, NFL, football, whatever. I, I mean, the list can go on and on. I got a long one. I'll just cut it right there. Whatever it is, if it's above God, it'll keep you from his banquet. I mean, that makes sense. If it's above him, right? How do you know if it's above him? I'll get to that in a moment. Business. Today, the new currency of importance, I'm, I'm sorry, not business, busyness. How's that? The new currency of importance, have you, have, you, have you noticed this, is how busy are you? Man, I just don't have time for anything. I'm just, I got a cell phone in one hand, I got a pager, not a pager, nobody uses those anymore, but I got all these things, everybody's contacting me, I'm so important. The currency of importance, how busy you are. But I promise you, no one ever got to the end of their life that I've ever heard of and wished they'd have just been more busy on their deathbed. Do you wish you could do, if you had it all do, to do over again, John, what would you do? I wish I'd have been more busy. Never heard that one. I've heard a lot of people. Didn't Steve Jobs basically say that? I wish I'd have been less busy. Wow, he accomplished, he was a billionaire. He invented the iPhone and all. I mean, all, I mean he's he's great entrepreneur, man. Yeah, but he wished he'd have spent more time with his kids. Wished he'd have done more around the things that mattered for eternity. Now, if Solomon, and he ran the experiment pretty good, came to that conclusion, and Steve Jobs and everybody else is, ever, is always going to come to that conclusion, do you and I really have to run the same experiment? Or could we honestly say it's already been run by more qualified people? Busyness. Now, the first group, first group missed the banquet ultimately because they had no heart for God. And those... Any one of those or all those areas revealed it. Now, how do you know? How do we know if we have a heart for God? Because that's it. This is how we end this whole thing. Here they are. 
wrap up with this. One, do you have affection for God? Oh, I was looking for something a little more concrete and stuff. I, that's kind of nebulous. No, it isn't. Do you love him? That's all. I don't know. How do you tell? I didn't ask if you don't drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. I didn't ask that. I didn't ask if you go to church three out of four Sundays. Didn't ask that. I didn't ask if you never cuss. I didn't ask if you read your Bible one hour a day or 45 minutes. I didn't ask if you pray on your knees or standing up. I just said, do you love him? Do you have affection for God? How do you know? Come on, people. How many of you are older than a seventh grader? Raise your hand. That's most people. I think sixth, seventh, maybe even fifth graders figure this out, right? When they have a crush on the opposite sex, they pass notes. They think about them all the time. They talk to you about them. I just can't stop thinking about it. I just can't. It's, it's some of that. 10-year-old can get it. 11-year-old can get it. You're going, how do I know? Do you think about God? Do you talk to him? Do you listen? Do you care? That's all. If you don't, big red flag. Big red flag. Number two, how do you spend your money? Oh, I knew he was going to get here. Well, here's the deal. Do you want to know if you have a heart for God or not? I can give you the real symptoms, the real way that you know I could make some up to make you feel good. But then you might just walk out of here, not receive the invitation and go straight to hell. You might. Let me just tell you the real ways the Bible gives. How do you spend your money? If someone looked at your checkbook, would there be a paper trail leading to God? Or would you find a paper trail leading to yourself? Some of you are like, you wouldn't find anything because I use all electronic online stuff. <laughs> then would you find an electronic trail to God? You, you get the point, right? Where does it lead? You can trace it back. Here's probably the toughest one there is for most Christians or people who think they're Christians. It's found in 1 John chapter 2. If any man hates his brother and says he loves me, he's a liar. Do you hate your brother? This one's real easy. I'm amazed at how many Christians pretend to be walking lockstep with Jesus while hating on a brother or sister in Christ. Might as well drop the charade. God says you're a liar. You go through your life. You say you love the things. You go to church. You do all the things. You go, I can't. I'm still. I'm going to talk about so-and-so again. I hate him, don't you? You set yourself up to be a professional critic of somebody else who's maybe done a lot of good. And that's going on all the time, especially in the Bible Belt, doesn't it? I've seen a friend of mine in the news lately. Pastor. And there's a lot of people bashing him. All of a sudden, there's thousands of experts on this guy's heart. Everybody knows his heart. But none of the people I'm talking to actually know him. Some people talk about him like they hate his guts. <clears throat> and this particular guy has at least cast the net out there faithfully enough to see 20,000 people come to Christ. I'm not going to go any further with that one. I just want to say it's possible to hate on people, right? Read an article about this pastor, and there were 300 comments below. Not one positive one. All hate-filled. If you hate your brother and you say you have a heart for God, you're a liar. And finally, your time. 
This one's a dead giveaway. When it's time to gather in the Lord's house and praise his name with your voices and sing songs to him and to, and to listen to the word of God preached and to fellowship with other believers, are you there more times or not more times? Or is just getting to church once a month or once every 10 weeks an absolute battle for you? Young person. And I can't see you that good. I wonder if they do that on purpose with the lights. Sir, ma'am, you made it here today because you responded to the first invitation. I, you may not even think that, especially those who come every week. Because you may be in the most danger if you come every week and you've kind of gotten the church thing, but you don't know me, you don't have a heart for the Lord. You might think, I just come here because I come here. I made my own decision. I never think anybody shows up any given week at church by accident. I never think that. I think it's all orchestrated by God. But I know if you're here today, because we prayed about this week, then your ears were open enough to the spiritual invitation from God through one of his children that you made an RSVP. And, and this is your RSVP. I, I want to hear about this banquet. I'm going to come. And I thank God for that. You didn't make some sort of ludicrous excuse. You weren't sidetracked by things of the world for even a moment. And it, it might just be a moment. And only God knows how long that moment lasts. It's kind of tricky. But for a moment, you have an open heart towards heaven and a sensitivity toward the things of the kingdom. And this may be the first time that's ever happened for you. And it might be the last. Gospel message has to be the most beautiful, powerful, deep, simple, complex message in the history of the world. I mean, look how simple it is. We sinned, we're born in sin, we stiff-armed God, God still loved us, invited us to be a part of his family, we stiff-armed many ways, so he sent his son down here, invited us to be a part of the greatest banquet that lasts for all eternity, we still stiff-arm him, and we still sin, and he says somebody's gotta pay for that sin, it's getting even worse, so he lives a sinless life, gives himself as a sacrifice in our place, and says if you'll just, I paid for it. Your guy's sin pile was so high, he didn't even realize it. But I just wiped it all out. I paid for it all on the cross. The invitations have been written out. Just, just come. Just come. Just receive the gift and come. And we still say, no, thanks. No, thanks. I'm, I'm a little bit busy doing trivial things. So simple. And it's so beautiful. I don't know how anybody honestly turns it down. Years ago, there was a movie. And it's hard to watch. Very hard to watch. Schindler's List. Remember that? Because these things that are true and we see how rotten man can get are tough to watch. But there's, there's a gospel message in that thing I, I never really noticed. See, Schindler starts out really rotten. I mean, he just wants to make more money and he just cares about himself. But towards the end of the movie, he's, he's trying to, to, to rescue Jews and keep them from the, the prison camps, the death camps, really. And so he gets them jobs. And pretty soon they're taking them away anyway because Hitler just wants to put them all to death. And so he finds more and more ways to save them for his company. But after a while, he starts saving them for them, and he starts realizing, well, they're killing them. What have I done? And he's given away all his wealth and everything he can find to get more of them rescued from certain death. And as the light's going on in the movie, and he's realizing there's nothing I have in this temporary life that is worth more than even one life, he can't give it away fast enough. 
he gets them all rescued, about 1,100 of them, and they start making munitions for the German army that don't work on purpose. So he's, he's wasting his money on that because he doesn't want them making stuff to, for an army that's killing them. And pretty soon he runs completely out of money. He can't buy anyone freedom anymore. And you get to this last scene. And I thought of, I thought of this banquet. And I thought as Christians of our assignment of inviting people to the banquet. And that one day as believers we'll stand before God and we'll look at it and we'll go, I could, I, I could have gotten one more. I, I could have... Why didn't, why didn't I witness? I wasted my time doing so many frivolous things. I don't want to have that moment before God. I don't as a preacher. And then on the other side of it, you see people that are standing there because you gave the gospel, because you invited. And they'll say to you one day, thank you for taking time for telling me the gospel. That's going to be a beautiful moment. All of it sort of comes to, to ahead at this scene. This one scene I'll never forget. It's when time is up and everyone realizes that whoever was saved was saved and whoever wasn't, wasn't. I could have got more. I don't know if I just... I could have got more. Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. If I made more money... <laughs> I threw away so much money. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> if I just... There will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. This car. Oh God, what about this car? Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This pin. Two people. This is gold. Two more people. You would have given me two for at least one. You would have given me one. I didn't. <laughs> Would you bow your heads? At the end of that wedding invitation, the banquet invitation, <clears throat> the king says, go out one more time and compel them. And that's where I'm at today. Maybe some of you have been going to church your whole life or doing the religious thing, and so you've heard the invitation. Maybe you've heard it from Billy Graham himself. And maybe God has become a nice, comfortable, part-time part of your life, but you've never really responded with your whole heart. Maybe you don't actually know him is what I'm saying. 
So I'm compelling you. That's the point I'm at now. As one of his children, I'm now going back out there and compelling you and, and, and begging you, don't walk out the door today and assume you're going to get 20, 30, 40 more invitations. We don't know where our next breath is coming from. Nothing's guaranteed. So the beautiful thing about the invitation is while it's going out, while you still hear it, you can respond. You can be a part of the banquet right now. And if you don't know how to do that, I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to pray silently in your heart after me. I just don't want you to talk to me or talk to the person next to you. I want you to be speaking to the living God. He'll open up his throne room and listen to you right now. The King of Kings, the one who offers the banquet, is inviting you right now. If you want to come and receive his gift and be adopted, just tell him from the heart. And if you feel your heart being moved right now, that's the Holy Spirit. And that wooing and that calling will not always be with you. If you continually stiff-arm God, the Bible's real clear. He'll stop calling. But if he's calling now, you need to respond. So pray after me in your heart. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your life in my place on the cross. Thank you for inviting me, a sinner, to be a part of your family. And thank you for purchasing that invite with your blood, your perfect, sinless life. Lord, I am sorry for cheapening that, for stiff-arming you, for belittling you, for putting you last. God, my whole life should be all about you, not me. Forgive me for my sins. Come into my life and save me. And when that day comes, Lord, when we're called to the banquet, I will be there. And I'll be heading there with my life pointed in your direction from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Could you keep your heads bowed, eyes closed? This is what is so neat about these celebrations. That's not the only party heaven talks about. It says, whenever one sinner comes home, all of heaven rejoices. So I know there's going to be a, a party here today. A party in heaven, at least. One last thing. If you prayed that and you meant it, then you have to identify yourself. Identifying yourself doesn't save you. He saved you when you prayed that. But if you're unwilling to identify yourself, it calls into question whether you meant it. If you want to immediately become a secret admirer or go undercover, it probably didn't mean anything to you. But if you know that you just reached out and you prayed that and he saved you and adopted you, then I'm just going to count to three and I want you to raise your hand and keep it up. I, I, I want to see you as your pastor. I, I want to see you. I want you to proclaim that before me, okay? Boldly. I don't want you to hesitate. And this isn't between whoever brought you or who you're sitting next to. It's between you and God. That's it, period. One, two, three. Raise your hands if you meant that. Keep them up. I want, I want to see you. And by the way, do not be, someone's going to bring something by and give it to you. Take that. Receive that gift. Because listen, gang, if you meant that in your heart, you don't need to be saying, well, I, I don't want to take a, a gift or a Bible. I, I've done this before. Well, maybe you didn't mean it before. It's the time when your heart connects with God that matters most. This is our gift to you, and it tells you about some next steps that you need to take as a believer. See, gang, it doesn't stop here. It starts here. 
It starts here. The rest of your life is an incredible journey. The rest of your life is an incredible adventure. It won't be trial free. In fact, you'll have to take up your cross to follow him, but it'll be well worth it. And now the God of the universe is on your side. He's with you. There's nothing better than that. And one day you'll be at the great banquet that the Bible talks about. Now the rest of you can open your eyes. There were seven or eight people that came to faith in Jesus. And I want to celebrate them as a church. Now listen, we, we're going to close the giving back to God. We've not done this before, but I've been so convicted over the years about people that are brand new baby Christians coming here making the most important decision of their life and then leaving and we lose touch with them. So inside that bag, reach in there right now. Reach in there. Everybody got a bag. There's a little red card. All I ask is that you fill that out and drop it in the offering basket when it goes by. That just lets us know because we're going to stay with you. We're, going to say, we're not going to let you go. The journey just started, and we're going to be on this journey with you. You are now a brother or a sister in our family. And so sometimes we'd lose touch with people, and that's a crime on, on our part. I never want to lose touch with someone. That, but you got to let us know you made that decision. you got to let us know. So when the bag comes by, drop that in. Baskin buys, drop that in. Let us know for the rest of you. I want this church that's really 11 weeks old now to turn into a movement, not just a church. People... Charlotte's got a lot of churches, don't have a lot of movement of the Holy Spirit. Some of you invited some people because I see some new faces here today. Let's make that a culture around here, okay? The gospel's going to go out more and more. Even in the very deepest teaching that we have, I'm going to try to weave in the gospel as much as I can. I want this to be a place where lost people can come and find hope every week, every week. Let's make it an invite culture. Let's take serious the Great Commission. And to support that, let's take serious now this time of worshiping God with our tithes and offerings. As the band plays, um, I'm going to pray for our tithes and offerings and pray that God will use it to his glory and honor and receive it. And then I want to meet you there at the back, especially those that made a decision for Jesus. Father, thank you for the harvest today. Lord, I pray that many more will come in the second service too that don't know you. They'll walk in here lost and confused, but they'll leave full of joy and hope and a part of your family and with an invite to the banquet that's real they'll be there. Please receive these tithes and offerings, Lord, and help us to give generously and to dethrone the stuff, the possessions of our life, that at least in this moment, that won't be God and won't compete with you. Lord, we want to do great and mighty things, and we ask you to provide that we can do that. Take the 10% we give you and multiply it a hundredfold uh, that we can see a movement for you and your glory only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.